Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. I'm Jeffrey Mason, head of research at the Charter Cities Institute. Joining me on the podcast today is John Vandenhoevel, the founder and CEO of Small Farm Cities Africa and a senior advisor to the Charter Cities Institute. We talk about the hyper-affordable agribusiness community John's company has built in Malawi, their next agro-industrial community that they're also going to build in Malawi, the importance of systems solutions to systems problems like poverty, and how John came to be building new cities in Africa. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, John. Good to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So to start off, tell us, what is a small farm city? Well, small farm city is the way to organize agriculture and housing and infrastructure in a coordinated way. So our company, it's a for-profit company, small farm cities. And what we're doing is we are essentially organizing agricultural production, affordable housing, and then integrating infrastructure in both hard infrastructure, things like electricity and water, and then soft infrastructure, systems, human resources, financial services, what we call soft infrastructure. And tell us a little bit about the first community that you've built, where it is, what you're producing there, how many people... Sure. Yeah. So we're about 20 kilometers west of Lalongwe in Malawi in Southern Africa. And what we've organized there is greenhouse horticulture with a housing model. So we've designed it for about 100 people and we've set up a mortgage program for the homes. We have been in production for now a year on the greenhouse We have about 75 employees, full-time employees. Probably 60 of them work in the agriculture space, and then the other 15 or 20 or so work either in skilled trades or management, handling. So on the skilled trade side, we employ welders, plumbers, carpenters on the construction side, and then managerial talent, handling everything from agronomy to human resources, And then the aquaculture as well. We do fish farming and we also do poultry. So yeah, that's our first project, really just a scaled prototype. About 70 something employees, about a hundred residents of the community. And that's been our first operating project in Malawi. And we started that about a year ago. Okay. Now, one of the things that you mentioned is that you're offering mortgages to people and obviously right housing Formal housing is a big issue in Africa where you're doing your work. And I know this is something you're passionate about in terms of actually giving people the ability to enter the formal ownership of housing at a price point they can actually afford. So talk a little bit about what you're doing there. Sure. I guess taking a half a step back, affordability, it almost becomes cliche, but it really has to be defined in order to be like useful in terms of either designing a business or designing a policy. And in the case of Malawi specifically and Africa more generally, the minimum full-time working wage is about $50 a month. And 
many people struggle even to make $50 a month because of the inconsistency of employment. Or in the case of agriculture, the seasonality of agriculture, especially agriculture that's dependent on seasons. So the devil's in the details when it comes to affordability. I mean, how much life can you afford on $50 in a month? You can just reverse engineer $50 and look at 30 days and say, well, if you spend $1 a day on feeding yourself and your family, what's left? So one of the things that's stunting development, broadly speaking, in Africa is that I'm not sure that developmental planners and policymakers and donors and the whole financing universe has wrapped their arms around what is actually affordable. And there's a lot of opinions, let's say, on, well, a house has to have this, a house has to have that. Well, once you have this and once you have that, then the house isn't affordable. So it really becomes a matter of coordinating. And when you start with the end in mind, where you say, well, what can someone afford if they're making $50 a month as a family? You can basically afford maybe $10 a month on housing, maybe 15. And so you sort of start from there. And what we've tried to do with our work is establish a baseline that's a credible baseline. It's not fake. It's not made up. It's not propped up with some external funding source or donations or anything. It's like, no, strictly speaking, what can a family afford if they make $50 a month? And that is really a home about $1,000 maximum. And the reason for that is because there's really no methodical home financing, no mortgage financing. This is the real pickle when you're essentially looking at an informal economy and you've got masses of humanity living in an informal economy and you're really left with a full-scale unbankable scenario, at which point attempts to intervene are stunted in terms of their effectiveness because they're not established on actual economic reality. So our point with small farm cities is that we don't really want to bother with why mobilize investment, why even be there to sort of prop up or perpetuate a fake economy. So as I'm kind of framing our home mortgage program, our home mortgage program is built on reality, which is what are the minimum wages and then what can someone afford at that minimum wage? And that engineering, that financial engineering, that financial structuring, this then opens the doors. The basic economics is that a $1,000 mortgage is about $25 a month for 48 months or something like that. So that's $25 a month. It's a lot of money if you're making 50. So what we've done is we finance the home, but we also are coordinating an extra 100, 150 square meters around the home of agricultural production. And so things that don't really thrive in a greenhouse, like root crops, so potatoes and onions, carrots, things that there's no benefit to being in a greenhouse, 
we do open field and then we cultivate that 100 square meters minimum around a home and that generates essentially 20 to 30 dollars a month so now you're talking about a manageable plot someone earning $50 a month from some other source, now they and their family can live in a $1,000 house and they can actually pay for that home. That means that's their home. That's their plot. So what we've really focused on in terms of our mortgage is it's essentially a piece of a larger puzzle. And the larger puzzle is affordability. And the pieces of that puzzle are essentially what are the specific elements that can contribute to the ability of a low income, but income working family to actually start to build wealth, to store value. That is at the heart of small farm cities. I recall, I won't say where, but we once went on a site visit to a different city project and you know, chatting with them and they were stunned at the sort of price point that you were able to achieve. So I think it is really impressive what you guys have been able to do there in terms of driving housing accessibility for people at sort of the bottom of the economic ladder. Well, the fun part is that a $1,000 home, it's very, very basic, obviously. But for another $200, you can add a bathroom to the home. So we don't have indoor plumbing or a bathroom because that is $1,500 all in. But if you are earning $60 a month or $70 a month, you can afford that right up front. And if you're not earning that money, but you are learning the trades and the skills, you can build it yourself. And we put that right into the design. So I think modularity, those things that make economic sense, it's like going to a restaurant. You want the basic meal, but oh, do you want fries with that? Do you want this? Do you want that? And building options so you have an affordable baseline. But then because you have the baseline, then let's say you earn an extra $10 a month or $15 a month. Now you can have this and you can have that and you can have the other thing. You can add a room. So it is a little shocking maybe to look at $1,000. And I'll tell you, to get a home, a decent home with proper seal and good protection against the elements and mosquitoes and water and a solid foundation and a metal roof and a veranda and living space, when it all comes together, it is a bit shocking that we can build a home for $1,000, but we can and we have. And we are like right now. And that's in Malawi with a very, very challenging supply chain and a devalued kwacha and all the other headwinds that you face. You mentioned modularity and how, right, you both at the individual house level, right, there are things you can add on to and expand to. How does the entire small farm city itself, what does that look like at that level in terms of modularity and, and, and ability to scale? Yeah. So the project I just described was our first project. Our next project is now under construction and it's a larger space. It's about a 20 acre, eight hectare space. How big is the current space by comparison? Three hectares or seven acres. So the space itself is a little less than three times bigger. And what we're able to do is we're able to then 
build in more elements. It's about the same number of greenhouses, but what we're doing right now is we're building plots that are 400 square meters instead of 100 square meters because the new residents of the current site won't have a full-time job with small farm cities. So they won't be earning the $50 a month with small farm cities, but because they have now 400 square meters, this is the modularity aspect of it. Because now with 400 square meters, they're actually able to earn $100, $120 a month. Well, they're no longer poor. I mean, to some extent, you might say they're no longer poor because now they're essentially on a path to accumulating on an annual basis hundreds and hundreds of dollars of margin. And so the key point with modularity is actually contributing to margin because the more you can essentially kill multiple birds with one stone or achieve economies of scale. I've always felt from my first project in Ghana 15 years ago, economies of scale is an economic principle or law. It's like gravity. You can like it. You can not like it. It doesn't really matter. I mean, gravity is gravity. So economies of scale, is it's not a matter of an opinion, you know, oh boy, it should be nice if. No, economies of scale is an economic principle. And it doesn't matter if you have a communist country, a monarchy, a democracy, economies of scale is what it is. It's an economic law. So the challenge in the informal economy and the unbankable economy is that how do you access the benefits of economies of scale? And the thing is, Africa is part of the global economy. The only problem is that Africa collectively is a price taker instead of a price giver or setter. They're a price taker. So what happens is that when you then reverse engineer this to the bottom of the economic pyramid and you have like hundreds and millions of people who are essentially left out of the mainstream of economic production and they are price takers, they are victims of these larger systems, they have no ability to achieve economies of scale. They have no ability to be competitive. And the market always rewards value. And so if you can't be competitive, how are you supposed to provide value? And that's why Africa imports 50 to $100 billion of food every year that they could definitely be growing themselves. And it's because on a massive scale, you do not have access to the benefits of economies of scale. So what we're creating by coordinating and bringing really micro municipal infrastructure, now I'm using the municipal word, which is relevant to the charter cities conversation. This is the only way that the African mainstream working class producer can become a real full member of the global economy. And it's not a matter of, is this a good idea, bad idea, whatever. It's like, no, these are economic principles. The market always rewards value. The Chinese Communist Party knows that. Democratic Western free market economists know that. The only question is, what are the principles upon which you can organize economic actors 
And when a small farm city is doing, what we're doing in real time is we are organizing economic actors. It's just that we're organizing those who have up to this point essentially been treated as third class citizens, just producing widgets for a larger aggregator who then sucks all the value and projects that value into the global economy. And what we're doing is we're saying, wait a second, let's create infrastructure systems, hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure, so that everyone can access the benefits of economies of scale. That way they can start producing a product with value to the market on a competitive basis and actually start to get ahead. You started to allude to your second Small Farm Cities project. I want to ask, how do you source talent? There's obviously a lot of very talented people in Africa in Malawi, in every country, and that's often difficult to access, or it's not concentrated, right? There is no equivalent San Francisco Bay Area in Malawi or anywhere in the continent. But yeah, I think you guys have done a really good job of being able to identify, source, and also develop talent locally in Malawi. So can you talk about how you find good people and the sorts of training for your employees and residents that you guys have been doing? Sure. Well, honestly, Jeff, I mean, this is the most exciting part of what we've been able to do in Malawi is organize a team. I mean, like a truly a world-class team. I obviously credit my co-founder Leif Van Grinsven for really being the sort of organizer and developer of our management and our operational talent. Our approach has been a blended approach, you might say. And what I'm referring to is Number one, everybody is a professional, even someone who doesn't have any formal education, even someone who may have been referred to as a casual laborer. Professionalism starts before someone is even hired. That tone is set and valuing a person, they might be earning at the beginning $50 a month, but there's an assumption that we make as a company that everyone is capable of achieving more if they're willing to put in the time and effort and if we're willing to put in the time and effort to make it so. So now we have basically three categories of employee, if you will. We have the working class professional, no formal education or very little formal education. Then we have skilled trades. So welders, plumbers, carpenters, those who have trade skills. And then we have sort of a blended managerial talent pool, which are university graduates. They may have majored in communications or agronomy or Bible or whatever. What we're looking for are leaders and servant leaders, those who have a high degree of human respect and you might say social capital. We're looking, especially at the managerial ranks, for those who can just as easily sit in a boardroom of a national bank or meet with the president of the country and then sit under a tree in a village and be equally conversational, relational in all manner. And our team is that. We have gifted people who are fun, we put a premium on fun. We put a premium on having a good time. And we put a premium on working very, very hard. And then we put a very big premium on training and development. 
Our main center at Small Farm Cities is the town and tech center. And the technology, we use Starlink, we use the satellite internet, and everyone has access to that. We've got young man right now in the working greenhouse 40 plus hours a week. And then in the evenings, he's studying coding, getting an online degree. We've got multiple people getting online degrees. So we are a very young company. I'm the old man. Even Leif, who's only 27, almost 28, is almost the old man. So it's a very young culture. We're looking for young men and women who want to learn, want to have a good time, want to work hard, and want to really contribute to the development of the country. And so, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say there's any secret sauce to it. It's just a lot of passion, a lot of intentionality, and a lot of respect, just peer-to-peer respect. I think that's really exciting, what you guys have been able to do and what you're continuing to do. And Imagine is going to continue even at bigger scale in the next community that you guys are planning. So just tell us about the new one that's in the works now. Sure. One of the key hypotheses that we've had to prove is that the model can scale. And we would like to take a bigger bite of that and push it to 5,000 people, 10,000 people. And those plans are now in the works. The step we're taking right now, I think, will position us to get to the five, 10,000 person scale. And that is we are building currently in an area about 40 kilometers north and west of Lalongwe, the capital city. And we are right next to what is evolving or developing as one of the world's largest new titanium mining operations. The mine is not yet operational, probably won't be for another 18 to 24 months, but all the groundwork has been laid. It's not a secret. It's Sovereign Metals. It's a publicly traded company from Australia. And so all of this is public information. Sovereign Metals, Titanium Mining, Rio Tinto is a major shareholder. So it's a big time new rutile graphite titanium operation that is now coming online. So what we're doing here in the current project is we're building. I mean, we're building essentially a 2.5 or 3x version of what we've just built. But where we're building it opens up now additional doors. And the additional doors I would describe as light industrial. Light industrial, so the mine is pretty much heavy industry. And the mine is going to be kind of investing in like heavier industrial elements, things like electricity, water systems. I mean, it's big time. It's going to be a billion dollar operation. But what we can do by locating an agricultural cluster right next to that is we can now begin to diversify what is really a small farm city. I mean, is a small farm city more about the small farm or is it more about the city? And it's like all of the above. Because the fact of the matter is not everybody in a small farm city already is a farmer. And what we're building right now, the platform that we're building will be very conducive to the development of support services that can be offered to the mining operation, hospitality, housing. They're going to have a thousand employees. They're going to be 
engineers and scientists and product developers. And what we're doing with light industrial is we're basically saying, look, we already build our own furniture. That means we're already working with wood. We're already working with metal. What we're going to be investing in now is some very, very basic plastic injection molding equipment. Malawi is a rubber producer. In the northern part of Malawi, they produce rubber. So between chemicals, wood, metals, plastics, rubber, you have essentially all the raw material to build a very diversified industrial base. And the other piece of this that I think is very interesting is that the mining area, the area of proven rutile graphite deposit is a very large area. The area is probably 20 to 25,000 hectares. Well, 25,000 hectares is the size of Taipei. So Amsterdam is 22,000 hectares. So an area the size of Kampala, St. Louis, Missouri is 18,000 hectares. So that's just the area of where they know there's titanium. So the idea that over the next 25 to 50 years, that a new city, really a modern city that's designed for the people, that that could be built right here in this space is extremely realistic. In fact, it needs to happen because if it doesn't happen, then you end up with what you have all across Africa with mines which is you have big holes in the ground and you haven't developed the community, you haven't developed the area. So you end up with an environmental mess, you end up with a human mess, squatters, just all kinds of issues. There's no coordination to get the benefits of the municipal infrastructure. Exactly, exactly. So we look at this current project as we're just getting organized and there's a tremendous opportunity to develop different kinds of industrial tracks. And this is, I think, one of the key principles for charter cities to keep in mind across Africa is what's in the charter. You can build industries without building cities. So we have this all over Africa. You have copper mining, you've got rubber plantations, coffee, tea estates. You've got commodity-based industrial investments all over Africa, but you don't have towns. You've got Nairobi and then you have the bush. So you got Kinshasa, then the bush. So this whole concept of leveraging industry to then build a community, this is just has not been done. So you can have industry without building communities. You can just extract the resources and send it to the market, and the people are just an afterthought. Look at the cocoa sector in Ghana and Ivory Coast. I mean, cocoa farmers make less money adjusted for inflation. They make less money today than they did 100 years ago. They're not going anywhere. The cocoa industry should be embarrassed at how little development they have brought to the major cocoa producing countries in Africa. So you can have industry without community. And the colonial methodology has 
flourished for decades, even centuries in this way. It is now time to build the communities and build the cities that leverage these industries. Because the thing is, you can't build communities without industry. So you can have industry without communities, but you can't have communities without industry. So you can have a charter, a great law, a great governance, but you got to have the industry. So our focus with small farm cities is to develop industrial production. It is to create value. The charter is where the value can be then recognized in a global context, legally recognized. What good is it to create value if there's no legal recognition of that value? You know, it's like Hernando de Soto with the book, The Mystery of Capital. I mean, he hits the nail on the head, which is the world's poor are sitting on trillions of dollars of dead capital, dormant capital. Well, the only way to bring that alive is with a charter. And so from our perspective, we're kind of in the grinder here of saying, okay, what does this look like? And then the second key point here is, accessibility. Because it's one thing to kind of then build an upscale gated community and then leave everybody out. So a lot of industrial zones around Africa, you bus in the workers and then you bus them out. And they're basically squatting wherever they are. And you're not building the towns. You're not building the communities. So what we hope we can do here with small farm cities in Saru, in Kasia, in Malawi, west of the capital, is be a contributor, be an organizer of a way forward, a new way of thinking. That's a win-win. And sort of all of that conversation and then the policy and all that framework, I'm kind of calling a charter. It just makes sense that that be the relationship between sort of the industrial development, the accessibility, and then the governance that sort of makes a good deal for everybody. On this topic, I'm sure you know the government in Malawi just recently passed an updated special economic zone law. And one of the components of this that we found really exciting is that in addition to your traditional industrial park, export processing zone, technology park, etc., is that it allows cities and urban areas to enjoy the full benefits of a special economic zone regime. So is this something that with your new community that you're planning to take advantage of? And then sort of more broadly, what is your interfacing to the extent that you do, your interfacing with government look like? Sure. I think this was a very significant development in Malawi, one that I believe the Charter Cities Institute was a key contributor to. And that is that the special economic zone law factors residential urban development. So it really is an advancement. You might call it, and I think that many colleagues with charter cities have called it Special Economic Zones 2.0. And that is where it's not just an industrial park. It's a foundation to build a healthy, blended community. And so that law, it's a very exciting development in Malawi. And we plan to pursue that for sure. We will absolutely pursue designation and recognition under this law. I would only say that I'm not sure yet, honestly, chicken or egg, because the way we've built so far, we could never have waited for some kind of designation like this. 
we've developed on just private property and private title property. And then everything is really governed by contract between parties. So you might say we have charter by contract because it's private land and everything is governed by contract. Our relationship with the land, our relationship with each other, everything is governed by contract. And that's okay. I think that's okay at this scale. But under the new policy, the opportunity to kind of now bring in a larger regional focus, a more integrated kind of model where there are more players, more actors, it's more complex set of relationships. And so what I don't know, honestly, is I can't predict how long it will take, let's say, for us to get this recognition or what hurdles will be put in place. The law is actually a bit ambiguous in terms of its implementation. Yeah, we're going to need some supplemental regulations. Exactly. So I don't know. What I hope we can kind of do is become a coalition of aligned stakeholders. Our residents, our employees, ourselves, other collaborators, the government themselves. We have a good working relationship with the National Planning Commission, with Thomas Muthali, the director general there. He's been great to work with. I think he has a real vision for the future of new cities in Malawi. The NPC was very involved and making sure that this language of city development and secondary cities is baked right into this new special economic zone law. So on paper, you might say stars are lined up. Now it's a matter of execution, implementation, and everyone hopefully is aligned in terms of like, what's our objective? Our objective is an inclusive, healthy, balanced economic platform that makes investment by foreign investment as well as local investment makes it very, very favorable, good conditions, very reliable regulatory framework. The ability to think in terms of larger investments in power and water, getting into the multiple megawatt power solutions, etc. So It really is an exciting moment, but also a moment of uncharted territory. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting opportunity. Now, earlier you briefly alluded to a previous project you had worked on in Ghana. Could you talk about what lessons you learned from that that you've fed into small farm cities and also why Malawi? So on the first question on the lessons, full disclosure, I did write a book called Africa Risk Dashboard. So I've got like 50 podcasts worth of lessons, but let me just hit the highlight. The highlight is essentially what I alluded to earlier, which is that economies of scale and affordability, it's a system of many different factors. And the most important takeaway from our investments in Ghana is that when you set out to invest in agriculture, The agriculture is just one part of it. The transport, the logistics, the finances, the currency. I mean, we developed a dashboard, legal issues, contractual, legal policy issues, financial issues, operational issues, which is both hard infrastructure, soft infrastructure, 
environmental issues, social issues, and then safety and security. And the reason we came up with that is because when you're an investor, you can't go to the ministry of all of that. There's not the ministry of all of that. (laughs) So you've got the minister of agriculture, but he doesn't have anything to say about transport. Go to the minister of transport, but he doesn't have anything to say about electricity. And on and on it goes. Not to mention like education and health and housing. So a systems problem absolutely demands a system solution. And what happened in Ghana is we realized after just a matter of maybe five to eight months is that we weren't building a farm. We were building like a city because a city is a system. A city essentially is like a reconciliation of all of the above. And our work in Ghana sort of took us into, through a long story I won't go into, took us into a collaboration with the MIT School of Architecture and Urban Planning. And we worked very closely with a Kenyan-American professor named Calestis Juma, who was a faculty of Harvard Kennedy School, but then was a visiting professor, the Martin Luther King Jr. visiting professor at MIT. And we organized a lab essentially around this. And it really took me into the urban planning space. I'm not an urban planner, but it took us squarely into the urban planning space, sort of the civil engineering space. And so coming out of Ghana was a strong view of the necessity and the importance of infrastructure and systems in order to make agriculture viable, African agriculture viable. And probably one of the key kind of takeaways boiled down to, was it cheaper for a ton of corn to get from Minnesota to Ghana than for us to produce a ton of corn in Ghana and get it to the Ghanaian port? And the fact is, yeah, it's cheaper to produce and deliver a ton of corn from Minnesota on the Mississippi River, through New Orleans, on a freighter, deliver it in a bulk freighter to the port in Tema in Ghana, cheaper than for most Ghanaian farmers to produce that same ton somewhere in the middle or north of the country and deliver it to the exact same spot. Now, that's not a seasonal problem. That's a structural problem. And the problem scales. So, Maize production, soybean production in Africa suffers greatly, not because of just seed and fertilizer or the kind of what gets over climate change is a real thing, but it becomes almost like an excuse to suck and did not figure out other things. It's like, oh, good, we got climate change. We need more money. It's like, well, more money on one piece of the problem isn't gonna solve the problem. It's a systems problem. It requires a system solution. So coming out of Ghana in this very expensive test on our part is where we come up with small farm cities because a small farm city essentially takes all those questions and boils them down to, okay, what do we need to do to make the whole system work? What brought me to Malawi was an invitation that related to Malawi's dependence on tobacco as a cash crop 
and the fact that global demand for tobacco is going down and it really is impacting the Malawi economy. And because of our work in Ghana and work in other places, Dubai and so forth, I was invited to kind of weigh in on that. And that's something that I did for a few years working with an organization called the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. That was purpose was to kind of envision a more diversified Malawi economy. And my recommendation was to not just swap tobacco for maize or, okay, you're growing maize. Okay, why don't you grow potatoes? Or it's like, no, I mean, if you're barely getting by growing tobacco, is it really an upgrade to just barely get by growing maize? Or is there something more substantial that we should be looking at here? And that was really a recommendation to do small farm cities. That would be a small F, small C, small farm cities. And through actually your organization, our organization, Jeff, Charter Cities, I was introduced to Patrick Friedman, the GP of Pronomos Capital at a Charter Cities event. And we started to discuss new cities. And, and I said, look, in Malawi, what we really need is like, a Chicago-style hub, kind of a Chicago-style agri-industrial hub. It's water and rail and industrial and residential. That's kind of what we need. And he said, well, why don't we do it? And so that was 2021, and now it's 2023, and, and we're up and running. So that's why Malawi. The original small farm city model, I had sort of with friends and colleagues from MIT and my company, we had sort of envisioned this for Southern Somalia. We originally came up with the idea as the result of an announcement by President Kenyatta of Kenya that he was going to shut down the Dadaab refugee camp in Garissa area in Eastern Kenya and was going to send maybe 150, 200,000 Somali refugees back to Southern Somalia in an extremely fragile situation. And we were invited by the Somali government and by the Juba state and by the Southwest state of Somalia to like conceptualize what would you do? And our view was you would build basically safe economic zones. You would build zones that could be defended, but then within the zone really would emphasize the relationship between home ownership and housing and agricultural production, and then starting with light industrial development. So that the original concept was actually under pressure to envision what would you do with 50,000, 100,000 refugees if they were forcibly sent back to Southern Somalia. So President Kenyatta then, that was all resolved and Dadaab is still up and the people are still trapped in, in Dadaab refugee camp. And we never did build this for Southern Somalia, but that was like 2018, 19. And the idea was valid then and it's valid now. Yeah, something interesting, actually, we just saw a few months back, Kenya. I can't remember off the top of my head if it was one or two, but they actually went ahead and chose to declare two refugee camps as formally as municipalities. So they can start to transition away from that sort of helpless camp model to something that can actually be economically productive and endow the people living there with at least some semblance of economic and other rights. Um, so I think it's interesting to see how this sort of 
refugee cities and similar concepts are going to emerge. I agree. Yeah. Two final questions before we wrap up. First, in a past life, you were a senior staffer in the House of Representatives. How does one go from working on the Hill to building cities in Malawi? And the second is that we know you're very proud of your Dutch heritage. How does that influence your work? How does a Hill staffer, a political hack, end up in Africa developing agricultural industrial cities? So that's a tough question. So I'm going to kind of give you a form of an answer that is probably very unsatisfactory. When I worked on Capitol Hill, I worked with the last four years was with a congressman from Oklahoma named J.C. Watts. And J.C., African-American congressman from Oklahoma, he was an Oklahoma Sooner football star, great athlete, visionary, entrepreneur, just very focused on economic freedom as the way to beat poverty. So I would say sort of philosophically what had been happening for me in terms of working in public policy was economic freedom and opportunity and entrepreneurship. That's sort of the only way to really sustainably beat poverty. But too few people have the tools to make that happen. And so my work on Capitol Hill was focused on American poverty, kind of American entrapment, inner cities, the whole criminal justice system, the whole mess of mass incarceration of African-American males, especially, and then the resulting sort of economic entrapment that continues to this day to afflict a pain and stunt the development of in particular, the African-American community, but really all communities for which mass incarceration and poverty become sort of the perfect storm. So I was invited just as an afterthought in 2001 to go on a congressional trade mission to Africa. I'd never been there. And because I was staff director of the Republican conference in the House, a leadership staff position, I got to just go on what you might call a junket. We flew from Andrews Air Force Base to Senegal and then Nigeria and then Ghana. And, and then we were back in five days. And it's like, yeah, okay, been to Africa. But on the last day, we were in Nigeria and Lagos, kind of looking over the city. And I was just like blown away. Like, what's going on here? I mean, all this energy, all this excitement, and then all this chaos. And it's like, what is this? So you might say that what began as a curiosity became an all-out obsession by 2008. Like, I really started to just kind of pour myself into the idea that, well, wait a second, entrapment's entrapment. And it could be in the inner city of Baltimore, or it could be Lagos, Nigeria. So I just decided at that time, I was 39 and naive and probably a little bit arrogant. And I thought, you know what? USAID is not going to hire me. World Vision is not going to hire me. I'd have no credit. I'm not an Africa junkie, but I have a couple bucks. I think I'm just going to go and just pour myself into this and just see if we can make Africa work. And if I fail, I fail. So it's kind of something a 39-year-old might think. So 
It's a long, crazy story. Pretty insane. I would have never imagined that 15 years later, I was still doing what I'm doing. I'm a God guy. I'm pretty faith-oriented, and I believe God's got a higher purpose, and I've made a lot of mistakes. I've had a lot of failure. But that's the shortest version I can possibly come up with as to why a political hack ends up doing what he's doing in Africa. I think even the short version, I think it's a great story. Right on the edge of pure lunacy. (laughs) (laughs) But every day is fun and every day is an adventure. Even if the end of the day, I'm like crying. (laughs) Well, it seems like the way things are going now, maybe fewer tears than there used to be. More smiles these days. It is coming together and we're really excited, but we're not out of the woods yet. We got a lot to prove and it's a big task, but we got a great team and I've really appreciated the encouragement of Charter Cities and kind of the alignment of your thinking, our thinking, and it's been fun. Yeah, it's been awesome for us to work with you as well, and we're excited for what's to come. Thanks for chatting, John. Hey, thanks a lot, Jeff. Yeah, take care. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, Please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.